What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we celebrate Sarah Croft's admission to the American College of Trial Lawyers. Dick Casson explains that calling a bribe a facilitation payment does not make it legal. We take a deep dive into the Sergeant Marine FCPA enforcement action through a series of blogs by Tom. We look at compliance risk and collaboration tools through a blog post by Matt Kelly and a podcast by Tom and Matt. We ask, is your company ready for the future? Jim Deloach explains. And can VW change its culture? The New York City Bar releases recommendations on CCO liability in regulated industries. All on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 224, for the week ending October 2, 2020, the white supremacist edition. The boys are back in town. Well, indeed. But as President Trump fumbles through the absolute most abysmal performance ever in a presidential debate, we have the NBA Finals and the MLB Finals featuring those world-renowned ethical purveyors of great standards, the Houston Astros. We're back not to praise Caesar, but to render him through looking at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. Jay, what say you? I say let's get on to the good stuff and... uh... Why don't you tell us what is in the Grand Jury Target blog? So, uh, as most of our listeners know, one of our favorite blogs is the Grand Jury Target blog, and one of our favorite people is its author and founder, Sarah Croft. And she wrote a blog post this week uh, talking about her first experiences as a mock trial lawyer in high school. It was a great story. Uh, We had a uh, wardrobe failure. Uh, We had... um, uh, a great story about uh, a borrowing a dress and her winning her mock trial competition. And it all led to an even greater story. Sarah has been greatly honored by induction into the American College of Trial Lawyers. This is the most preeminent trial lawyer group in the United States. It's by invitation only. Uh, and I just want to shout out to Sarah. It's a great honor, well-deserved. And um, I can't think of anyone, frankly, Jay, who, who, uh, deserves it more than Sarah. So uh, next up, we've got a story uh, from the founder of the FCPA blog, Dick Casson. And Dick wonders that if calling a bribe is a facilitation doesn't actually make it legal. Last week, uh, they ran an excellent post on the FCPA blog from Matthew McFillin and Amanda Rigby of KPMG. And they talked about COVID-19 caused government shutdowns and delays that companies are experiencing to obtain permits. They may feel dramatically increased pressure to pay facilitation payments to expedite these processes, the authors said. The Post reminded Richard of a particular compliance risk 
from the FCPA's Grease Payments Exception, Temptation. The DOG, DOJ and the SEC have addressed this temptation head-on. The two agencies, not known for their dry wit, included in their FCPA resource guide this nearly cheeky statement, quote, labeling a bribe as a facilitation payment and a company's books and records does not make it one, close quote. What's literally notable about the quote is that it's footnoted, and the footnote number 170 cites a 2010 FCPA enforcement action against Noble Corporation based on payments to customs officials in Nigeria. Noble settled the FCPA allegations with the DOJ and the SEC for about $8 million. The feds allege that the company used facilitating payment exception to approve bribes to the customs officials. The bribes resembled facilitation payments, but they weren't. For today's COVID-impacted companies and their compliance group, the DOJ's fact statement in Noble and the SEC's civil complaint are valuable documents. They both set out legal intricacies of the facilitating payments exception. Briefly, Noble needed temporary import permits for, for its drill rigs operating in Nigeria. When the temporary import per, permits expired, Noble was supposed to move the rigs out of the country, apply for a new permit, and then re-import. The company, via their agent, bribed custom officials with about $74,000 to approve the false paperwork, and in the in conjunction with this, Noble ended up saving more than $4 million in costs. During a compliance review, Noble's audit committee learned about the paper process, as it was called, and determined that it violated the FCPA. Noble Corporation said its non-prosecution agreement with the DOJ that it admits and accepts and acknowledges responsibility for the conduct of its employees, agents, and subsidiaries. The noble enforcement action demonstrates that real-life temptation when a nearby loophole can save enormous amounts of money. The compliance problem is magnified when the loophole is, is narrow, like the facilitating payments exception. During this ever-lengthening season of government shutdowns and long bureaucratic delays, the noble case is a good reminder that, as the DOJ and SEC smartly said, labeling a bribe as a facilitation payment is and in companies' books and records does not make it so. So, Jay, uh, this week I took a deep dive into the Sergeant Marine FCPA enforcement action. This is a, a very rare case. Uh, you have a criminal FCPA enforcement action against a company. You have six individuals who have previously pled guilty. Uh, you have uh, the name founder of the company, Daniel um, Marine, uh, involved, if not running, the bribery and corruption scheme. It's uh, in thinking through it, uh, there were uh, several interesting points. Probably the the most interesting and the one that people have focused on the most was the huge discount given to the company uh, for its inability to pay. Uh, under the U.S. sentencing guidelines with a reduction from the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, the company owed uh, $90 million dollars in fines or penalties, and the uh, DOJ accepted a payment of $16.6 million. So that obviously is uh, I- unusual in and of itself. The DOJ explained that it had uh, thoroughly vetted through forensic accounting the company's claims and found this to be reasonable under the circumstances. Interestingly, the uh, j- tr- judge in charge of the DPA also took evidence 
or at least uh, argument from the parties on this and willingly accepted it as well. So we have a rare inability to pay case. I can only think of really two or three in the last 10 years. Um, But uh, kind of the lessons learned, Jay, I think since this case is so rare uh, that you have uh, really C-suite and named owner involvement and if not directing the bribery scheme, certainly involvement in it, it's hard to really point to a compliance failure because clearly you had a corrupt organization whose business model was based on bribery and corruption. But uh, I'd like uh, all of the compliance officers, but more importantly, senior executives and boards of directors out there to think about what are the implications of this. One of the reasons for the inability to pay, actually two of the reasons, were were stated in the uh, plea agreement. Number one, the joint venture, which garnered all the profits, some $38 million, uh, had to be uh, divested and sold because it was so corrupt and the company could not run it in a non-corrupt manner. Second thing was whatever was left to the company in terms of assets, so little value was attached to it, they couldn't really monetize it through loans or on the secondary market. What all that means, Jay, is if your business model is based on bribery and corruption and you take away the bribery and corruption, your business model is going to suffer. And clearly, Sergeant Marine cannot replace the business it engaged in because it was based on bribery and corruption. So all those contracts are void. And then the last point is, who's ever going to do business with you going forward? Yeah, you pled guilty. Yeah, you avoided a monitorship. Yeah, you said you cleaned yourself up. But no, no company, certainly no self-respecting company, no company that puts you through any due diligence is ever going to do business with you again. Uh, it's kind of like Wells Fargo. Well, we said we uh, we weren't bad anymore, and uh, believe us, trust us. Well, who would ever trust a company that had as its business model bribery and corruption? So uh, I really think, upon reflection, there's some pretty good lessons, and that, but they may be aimed really at the uh, C-suite and uh, the boards of directors. Thanks, Tom. Next up, we've got a story from the coolest guy in compliance. Matt Kelly takes a look at compliance risk around collaboration tools. And this also was an opportunity for Tom and Matt to take a deep dive in compliance into the weeds. We link to both in the show notes. Last week, Matt spoke on a webinar about the role of compliance officers and how they, what they should play in helping to guide a firm's electronic communications. After all, coronavirus has forced tens of millions of work remotely, so the use of collaboration tools such as Slack, Zoom, Microsoft Teams, and similar applications are soaring. Well, what are the compliance risks generated by the shift, and how should business respond to them? The quick answer is that the risks are many. The longer answer is that to identify all these risks requires a detailed technical review and assessment, which in turn requires a compliance function fully engaged and what employees are doing with all these online collaboration tools. The key to managing the compliance risks attendant with online collaboration tools is to understand the use cases employees would make for such tools. And if you don't understand why and how employees want to use Zoom instead of Microsoft Teams, uh, the policies and controls you try to put around collaboration might not align exactly with what's happening in the organization. Okay, so the compliance officer needs to understand use cases. First, it implies that the compliance officer is working closely with business functions 
in the first and second line of defense. It also means that the compliance officer must work closely with IT to understand all the features of the tools. Because some collaboration tools do allow you to capture and prioritize red flags, but some others don't. By capturing the priority status of a message, this can be something important for record keeping. So you get the idea. Evaluating compliance risk of compliance tools can be a painstaking endeavor. Some of these collaboration tools have dozens of features that the compliance function will need to understand. Now coronavirus has tossed us into a blizzard of more modern collaboration tools. So yes, you really need to get through each tool with the IDT department and take a look at it feature by feature, analyzing how each one works. So how does a compliance program do that? Let's look at the small company and the large company. On one hand, the smaller firm might naturally allow the compliance officer to have more access to living, breathing employees. On another hand, a smaller firm with fewer resources at the compliance officer's disposal. And finally, a compliance officer at a smaller firm is also likely to be a part-time CCO. Either scenario can leave the CCO struggling to keep pace with collaboration tools and the business units selected. Meanwhile, at a larger firm, you may not be able to reach all the employees to understand use cases. We mentioned earlier, if the business has 1,000 or 5,000 employees e-gabbing away, you're not going to get to know all those people. Instead, the compliance officer will need to work with the heads of those business functions. At a large firm, you might also have better IT support, and the IT team may have an easier path to implement enterprise-wise controls. But as people work from home and corporate apps and data on personal devices and networks, they'll have an easier time evading enterprise controls. So you need to rely on policy and training as much as you need to rely on the backup from IT. There is one good thing, at least when it's time for training, you'll have lots of collaboration tools to choose from. So Jay, next up, we had an article from Minky Sin and Jack Hagel over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal about Volkswagen. As our listeners will recall, they have <clears throat> completed their uh, monitorship and now Volkswagen is trying to change its workplace culture that fuel the emission scandal. So uh, when you have uh, 225,000 employees, you obviously are a very large, slow-moving ship. And getting anything to change or turn is a, a huge, slow, and long investment. The company itself paid uh, 32 billion euros um, in fines and penalties and compensation. So there was a huge cost um, as well uh, to the company. But what's more interesting now is does the company hasn't really made a change. And uh, it's going to take a long time to see if that change <clears throat> has occurred because there was a culture of tolerance for rule-breaking within the organization. And Jay, as, as you talk about culture much of the time, both on this podcast and other podcasts and in print, uh, you talk about how difficult it can be to change. Um, hopefully they have made the uh, necessary changes at the top. The monitor said it was a very different company than when he began, but the proof is going to be in the pudding. If uh, people can raise their hand and speak up without fear of retaliation, if the company uh, de determines that there's rule breaking going on internally uh, and will actually do something 
uh, would be uh, important as well, and whether the company uh, honors its agreements going forward. So going to be uh, a long road to hoe. Is this going to be a Wells Fargo, which is one FUBAR after another, or does Volkswagen really mean what it says? Only time will tell. So next up, uh, Tom, we've got an article coming to us from Corporate Compliance Insights. With the emergence of COVID-19 virus and social unrest, most organizations faced an uncertain future. Protivity's Jim Deloche, who we've had on the podcast before, asserts that with disruptive change, the norm, directors and executives must ask a fundamental question. Are we future ready? Future ready is a term that takes on a clear meaning in a highly disruptive and increasingly complex world. Simply stated, do the board's and executive management's composition, focus, and agenda position position them to best serve the company and its stakeholders? Future Ready captures an action orientation that directors and executives should consider carefully in order to face the future with compliance. Here are 10 suggestions from Jim as to what is expected of a Future Ready board and exec team. Number one, engage in big picture, out-of-the-box, bold, and disruptive strategic thinking. Enough agenda time and focus should be allowed to strategy setting, challenging strategic assumptions, exploring what-if questions, reviewing scenario and contrarian analysis results, and considering M&A. For example, directors and executives who are prepared to face challenges are sensitive to the vital signs of disruptive change, and as early movers act on those signs in pursuing market opportunities and addressing emergency emerging risks. Two, support a culture of constructive challenge with long-term focus. The focus of a company that takes the long view is on achieving equilibrium, balancing the entrepreneurial drive to create enterprise value with appropriate prudence to protect enterprise value, consistent with the board and CEO-approved risk appetite. Number three, Focus on appropriate sustainability objectives and delivering acceptable financial results. A future-ready board and executive team are mindful of developing interest in and potential impact of ESG, environmental, social, and government issues on long-term value creations, and they ensure that leadership throughout the organization are as well. Four, foster diversities in skills, experience, and perspectives in the boardrooms. Diversity stops, starts at the top, emphasis on diversity in director selection and in C-suite facilitates the desired diversity outcomes within the executive ranks and throughout the organization. Five, be passionate about improving the customer experience continuously. A strong focus on the customer experience leads to new innovations and different offerings. Six, think and act digitally. Futurity boards and executive teams have access to the expertise and experience needed to understand how digital disruption can affect the organization. Seven, reimagine the workplace. During the pandemic, we witnessed an acceleration of workplace redesign, increasing employee flexibility in many areas through a virtual work environment. In many businesses, the pandemic has proven that employees do not have to cluster physically in the same place to be successful. Eight, Drive and track information performance. Both the board and executive team are future ready when they place sufficient emphasis on the company's innovation strategy and culture. Nine, emphasize effective communications with employees as well as shareholders. The CEO and exec team should communicate frequently, transparently, and empathetically with employees 
and when necessary with customers, suppliers, and communities in which they operate. In periods of uncertainty, it's not possible to communicate or solicit feedback too often. And finally, number 10, nurture a flexible, adaptive, resilient, and ethical culture. Future-ready directors and chief execs ensure that the management incentives and the reward systems are in line with risk appetite and the organization is sufficiently adept and agile in navigating change in a complex, changing business environment. Uh, These suggestions are not intended to be exhaustive, but they represent a good start at improving a board and executive team's future readiness. And as we've said before, we link to this in the show notes. Tom, next to you. Jay, what we have here is the New York City Bar Association um, releasing recommendations on CCO liability in regulated industries. So that's the first thing to note. This is not commercial corporations. And, uh, (coughs) excuse me, they are concerned about uh, prior CCO enforcement action or enforcement actions against CCOs personally. And I don't share their concern because I've reviewed all of these enforcement actions involving a CCO personally, and they all uh, had uh, similar factors. Either one, the CCO was a part of the scam, or number two, the CCO basically was an ostrich and um, put their head in the sand and did not uh, perform their job. If you, as a CCO, are so eviscerated that you can't do your job, you need to leave because you're setting yourself up for a big potential liability. And <coughs> the um, the New York City Bar says that uh, FINRA and the SEC should be more open about factors they would consider uh, before they would bring a case of uh, CCO liability, personal individual liability, and <coughs> uh, whether good faith is a defense, uh, whether... Um, kind of an ongoing dialogue with various industry groups. And I just don't see, uh, we we talk about potential individual CCO liability, but I've just not seen it from FINRA, from the SEC, and certainly not in non-regulated industries over in uh, the commercial space, commercial corporations. So interesting article. It's a problem that, uh, solution that may be looking for a problem, but the New York City Bar sure seems to think about it. So with our last article of the week, we visit with another friend of the podcast, Jonathan Marks, and this comes to us from his Board in Fraud blog, and now I'm regretting that I didn't learn Latin. I'll take a shot at this, quis custodiat ipso custodis, translated, who will guard the guards themselves or who will watch the watchmen. Uh, In this blog, Jonathan takes a look at the recent Herbalife uh, China FCPA settlement, From the beginning, Herbalife's business relationship in China was committed to illegal activity, which it knew or should have known violated the FCPA. Specifically, beginning late 2006, Herbalife China provided improper benefits and payments to government officials to obtain direct selling licenses. Specifically, the SEC found that Herbalife China paid bribes to extravagant meals, gifts, and other benefits given to Chinese officials to obtain sales licenses and remove negative media coverage. The SEC found that Herbalife executives received reports of high travel and entertainment spending in China and violations of its internal FCPA policies, yet they still failed to detect and prevent improper benefits and falsified expense reports. 
here's what happened with the board internal audit and compliance. Usually the amount of spending would have triggered bells alone. In fact, it raised questions from the board that were supposedly answered by the company's internal audit function. These expenses also would have been in the eyesight and vision of compliance. Sadly, during this time, the company did not feel the need to have a chief compliance officer. Nearly one out of four internal auditors around the world face pressures to either suppress or change their audit finding. This comes from a recent global third survey on ethics and pressure conduct by the IIA's Research Foundation. Back to Herbalife. Only one board member emailed the audit committee and the senior VP internal audit who reported directly to Herbalife's audit committee asking whether high spending by China Director of External Affairs was reasonable. Please note, I have questioned this every year. I have been on the board and the company has defended its position that these are reasonable within FCPA guidelines. Amazingly, the IA director responded that the findings are typical issues in these audits and are within tolerance. Both the board and the internal audit director failed to follow up or resolve the red flags to initiate an investigation. Let's take a look at risk in the Chinese gift-giving culture. China is known for its abuse of gifts, meals, and entertainment expenditures due to the number of state-owned entities across many industries. Interactions with China often involve government officials, commonly government officials demand gifts, meals, <coughs> and entertainments. Global companies have to design and implement carefully constructed controls for gift, meals, and entertainment expenses. Even with the best internal controls, employees will figure out ways to circumvent or override internal controls. Let's look at oversight. With the ongoing expenditures of millions of dollars in gifts, meals, and entertainment apparently necessary to expand Herbalife China's business, the company had no meaningful oversight from internal audit and the compliance functions. The company did not commit to compliance. Indeed, its remediation included the hiring of a dedicated chief compliance officer. Surprisingly, a public company with global aspirations and operations failed to maintain any semblance of a compliance function. Organizational culture can be defined as the total of the psychology and attitudes which are communicated by the leadership team to employees and the ethics, values, and beliefs which are incorporated for execution of work and obtaining business objectives. After reading about the Herbalife matter, one can only wonder about the culture. A lot of what seemed to indicate the culture at Herbalife was good. According to one of their self-produced marketing pieces, According to Herbalife, the company is vibrant, exciting, inclusive, a great place to build a career. We're a fast-paced organization fielding challenges and opportunities around the world every day, and our employees are passionate about their work. Do you believe internal audit has transferred from an independent watchdog to a protector of top management? The IIA defines internal auditing as an independent objective assurance and consulting activity designed to add value and improve an organization's operations. But can internal audit be a finger pointer and still be viewed as value-adding department? What is auditing? Who is auditing the independent auditor? So, uh, again, Jonathan is thinking about uh, the way that controls can be used to help a company, and they were unfortunately severely lacking in this situation. Tom, here's the part of the show where we usually talk about your upcoming podcast. What kind of uh, new podcasts hit the airwaves this week? 
So, Jay, we had uh, part four uh, in the compliance life with uh, Deanna Wanquo, and she talked about sometimes you just have to stand your ground as a CCO. Over on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, we finished up uh, the month of September in internal controls, and we moved to a new month on business ventures. So uh, if you're interested in business ventures, meaning joint ventures, partnerships, teaming agreements, uh, really any form of a business entity tie-up, this is the month for you. Lots of great stuff in this one. Uh, I, I'd like to announce next week, uh, I, actually on this week, I had a five-part series with lawyers from Miller & Chevalier on the firm's 2020 Latin American Corruption Survey. It's been a great series. We wrap it up on Friday with uh, Matt Ellis and James Tillen looking back over the life of the survey, which is since uh, 2008. And next week, I have a special five-part podcast series on the Herbalife case which uh, you touched on. Um, we have uh, yourself, Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, Mike Volkoff, Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, and Matt Kelly, all providing commentary on the Herbalife case, which we'll post each day next week. So a special five-part series on the FCPA compliance report that uh, I know everyone will enjoy. Um, Jay, um, I'd like to, to make another pitch to any listeners who have not registered for Converge 20. We now have over 2,200 compliance professionals. This will be the largest compliance conference ever, um, certainly larger than any in-person co- compliance conference, and uh, uh, certainly the largest virtual conference. Uh, the tech is going to be spectacular. You're going to be able to engage. You're going to be able to uh, talk to your colleagues, uh, people like yourself who are always thinking of BD. It's going to be a wonderful uh, event for yourself to connect with some folks that perhaps you haven't met before, Jay? Is that possible? <laughs> the uh, I've had the opportunity to interview many of the speakers for their presentations for the Converge 20 podcast series, so I know how great a lot of these uh, events uh, and talks are going to be. So and did I mention the best part, Jay? It's free. Absolutely. So uh, if you need CLE... If you need CEUs uh, and you need free, this is the event for you. It looks really outstanding. A, a couple of things I wanted to highlight. Uh, I think, Tom, you're having a couple conversations with Sam Silverstein and talking about accountability. And then I another couple of things that caught my interest, um, accountability beyond diversity and inclusion. That's with Neha Gupta and Lisa Stewart-Hughes. And then finally, um, some friends of the podcast who are all banding together, Lisa Beth Lantini-Walker, Mary Shirley, and Lisa Fine from the Great Women in Compliance podcast. And they talk about bypassing burnout, maximizing your ethical impact, grow your career, and empower your team. So it sounds like some outstanding stuff. And the other thing that caught my eye is they are doing this virtually all over the globe. So, uh, it looks like if, if I wanted to stay up or get up early, I could tune in, get the European section, and then take the conference all the way around the globe. So uh, 2,200 people and the technology sounds amazing. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 224 for the week ending October 2nd, 2020, the White Supremacist Edition. Uh, we thank you for joining us. We hope that you are safe and you are well. 
And we look forward to seeing you next week at Converge 20. Thanks a lot and take care. Fox at tfoxlaw.com. We also got a new really cool app on the Compliance Podcast Network website where you can leave a voicemail or a message if you'd like to ask us a question or have a topic you would like us to consider. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories for the week that is to become. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.